during those three years, I would have nine millimeter nights where I would go to bed with the loaded cock nine at my head, wake up the next morning, put it away, and then tell Dr. Rosen to talk about it the next time I saw him. Those were very trying times for me, but he was consistent. He was helpful. And so I continued the process. He put me on strong medicine, which was, I think, part of the solution that I was missing from the first therapy experience that I went through. And that helped too. Please join us every week for a new episode of Understanding the Human Condition with Dr. James Flowers. Dr. Flowers and his most admired mentors, respected colleagues, and VIP guests will share valuable insight into underlying health causes, conditions, and issues. These in-depth yet approachable episodes are a great resource for both private individuals and industry professionals. Our esteemed host, Dr. James Flowers, is one of the most recognized and respected names in the field of chronic pain, mental health, and substance use disorders, both nationally and internationally. Dr. Flowers is the founder of J. Flowers Health Institute, located in Houston, Texas. For more information about J. Flowers Health Institute and its concierge services, go to jflowershealth.com or dial 713-783-6655. And be sure to mention this podcast. Good afternoon, everybody. I hope you're having a wonderful day. I'm Dr. James Flowers, your host. I'm the founder and CEO of J. Flowers Health Institute. And I am beyond honored today to have Dr. Rosenstock with us and Daniel Shepley. And we're going to talk more about their story here. But Dr. Rosenstock has practiced psychiatry for more than 60 years. I've been in practice 30 years, so I can't wait to reach that milestone of over 60 years. I can't either. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Dr. Rosenstock went to medical school at Oregon Health Science University Medical School of Medicine and his psychiatry residency at Baylor College of Medicine, probably right here in Houston. Absolutely. That's right. Dr. Rosenstock also became an ordained rabbi not at a young age, at the age. I was one of the oldest students. <laughs> I love it. At the age of 73. Congratulations. I and you're only 74 now. I know. It's amazing, actually. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Daniel Shepley is currently a contract specialist for the United States Navy, has two degrees from Penn State, one in electrical engineering and one in aeronautical engineering, as well as an MBA from Rice University, Jones School of Business. Congratulations on that, Daniel. And Thank Daniel you. is the author of The Other Side of Sanity, which is what we're going to be discussing a lot about today. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. It's a pleasure Thank to be here. Really. Thank you so much. Yeah. And Daniel, welcome from Pennsylvania. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Dr. Flowers. I, nice to meet you. I really wish that you could have been here in person, but we will do that another time. What I would love to start with is the amazing relationship that the two of you have formed over the last many years. And this book was written about your life, really, and about the relationship between the two of you and what you were going through. But what I'd like to start with, if you don't mind, Dr. Rosenstock, is the evening or the afternoon and early evening that this actually happened. Can you oh, walk us sure, through that sure. day in your office? Oh, yes. I remember that very well. <laughs> so actually, I'm getting ready to leave the office. Everybody's gone. It's dark outside and I'm on my way out. Mm -hmm. There's a guy. I don't want to mention any names. <laughs> There's a guy in the waiting room yes. in kind of dark clothing. We call it gothic a little bit. I remember. Yes. Yeah. He's carrying a black satchel. Okay. Now he doesn't have an appointment, so I don't know what he's doing there. Right. 
And he comes in, opens the door, comes right in, sits down right opposite me, like mm-hmm. you are. Sure. Puts down the satchel, reaches down, and he takes out of the satchel a nine millimeter gun, which wow. is on the front page right here. That's right. Same gun. The same gun. Yep. And he points it at me. And the muzzle is so close, I could bite it. Wow. And the next thing he does is he puts it inside of his mouth, back and forth like a windshield wiper. Okay. And he says to me, and of course, I don't know a lot about guns. He says to me, there's a bullet in the chamber. So somehow it didn't sound good to me. Right. And I see his fingers on the trigger, and I figured that's not a good thing. Right. And so there we are. So I said to him, I can see how depressed you really are. However, it's a very important however in my life. (laughs) I said, however, I do my best work with the pistol in the satchel. Absolutely. And with that, Daniel put the pistol in the satchel. And that's where we began. That's right. Absolutely. And I've never had a gun pointed at me before with a bullet in the chamber. Most important words of your life. I do my best work. Yes. And that's true, actually. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Couldn't be more true. That's right. That's true. How were you physically feeling at that moment? Well, you know, had I been a first-year psychiatrist, I might have felt differently. My immediate interpretation is he didn't come to rob me. Right. He's not a burglar. He had to come to a psychiatrist to ask for help. Right. So I felt that this behavior was really a psychotic way of asking for help. That's right. And so therefore, I didn't feel in immediate danger because there was a question there. Will you help me? Mm. And of course, I wanted to help him. I, that's what I live for, to help yeah. people. So I told him, I will help you, but I don't operate very well with a gun right at me. It's a distraction. Right, absolutely. So, but he got the message. He also got the message another way. After we talked for about an hour, he goes home. I don't call the police and the SWAT team and so on. Sure. Therefore, someone who is in a paranoid, psychotic way is really asking me another question. Are you going to, quote, turn me in? Right. But I didn't think I needed to do that. I felt we had already established what we call a therapeutic alliance. Yeah. We could work with that. And so, and then we started regular appointments. A few weeks later, Dan says, I got to tell you something. And you can verify this. He said, you know, I have to tell you. Had you not accepted me as a patient that night, I would have killed you and then myself. Right. I said, well, I appreciate all that. (laughs) Glad I said (laughs) yes. I'm really glad I said yes. Absolutely. (laughs) And Daniel, coming back over to you, I asked Dr. Rosenstock how he was physically feeling with that threat. You know, our bodies go into that fight or flight response, right? And he maintained it because of his wisdom and his experience. And he's absolutely correct. If he had been a green new psychiatrist, (laughs) you may have peed your pants. Yeah, we would have made a bad mistake. Absolutely. That's right. But Daniel, how were you physically, not emotionally, but how were you physically feeling at that moment, sitting in the waiting room and then walking into his office with a gun? Well, it's hard to describe unless you've ever been seriously depressed. Yeah. Where the brain chemistry is different than a normal person, where there's a cloud in your mind, can't get rid of it, where you're in a really, really dark place at the point of giving up. I was at that point. I was at the point of giving up. Yeah. And had Dr. Rosenstock not agreed to help me, I would have killed him and myself that night. I was needing help. I was needing professional help. I knew it. And he agreed to help me. 
Now that said, for the first couple of years, I watched it hyper, like a hypervigilantly. I watched for any kind of inconsistency, any sign, deviation from the norm. And he was very consistent, very patient, very helpful. I didn't see any inconsistency like what I saw in my first therapy experience, which I wrote about in the book, the that's crocodile right. up down. And so that's what we build upon to get back to your original topic of how our relationship is. It was built on that consistency and that trust. That's right. That was established up front. And what's so interesting is I read that you, that it didn't take, it wasn't an instant feeling of trust. But it took you a number, was it three years to really, truly feel the trust in the therapeutic alliance and relationship? Yes, it was. During those three years, I would have nine millimeter nights where I would go to bed with the loaded cock nine at my head, wake up the next morning, put it away, and then tell Dr. Rosen to talk about it the next time I saw him. Those were very trying times for me, but he was consistent. He was helpful. And so I continued the process. He put me on strong medicine, which was, I think, part of the solution that I was missing from the first therapy experience that I went through. And that helped too. That's right. And in fact, you had a diagnosis for him by the time he left the office that evening. What was the diagnosis? He had paranoid psychosis. Sure. Right. But, you know, trust was very important. Then... It wasn't a situation because of his background and so on and the severity that I could do it alone. Right. I felt that he needed to be part of a group therapy. Now, it took me a while to convince him that I'm going to organize an entire group around you. I'm going to put certain people in right. that I think will bring us together so that we can catalyze the progress. And it took a while for Dan to believe that I would do that. Right. But that's exactly what I did. You did. That's what yep, I did. That's right. And that was also part of the important ongoing therapy. And it's in the book sure. that we had to have a community of support as well. So we had a microcosmic world that was working with us beyond the individual psychotherapy sessions, beyond the psychopharmacologic interventions. That's right. Yeah. And what was your initial psychopharmacologic intervention? We used an antipsychotic medication. Mm -hmm. We used an antidepressant. Mm -hmm. And we also were doing something to cool down the anxiety and anxiolytic medication. Right. And we would titrate these things till we found exactly what made Dan comfortable. The most important thing was to reduce the internalized rage. And also, we had to obviate the paranoia, yeah. because with the paranoia, which was really an end stage part of the rage, we wouldn't get anywhere. And there were at least six people that might not be alive, you That's know, right. if we failed. That's right. And so that was all part of the construct and to really re-enter the world and see it from a different lens. That's right. And in fact, without your wisdom that day, there may have been five or six other people that may not have lived through that evening, correct? Correct. Very correct. As I wrote in the book, I had gone hunting at one point, and it was only when I failed to recognize that my target was planting shrubs in the corner of her tightly fenced backyard that she escaped her execution. I was serious about hurting people. Absolutely. 
And would you talk to the audience just a little bit about the events that led up to this? Where were you and what were you thinking that day and that evening walking into Dr. Rosenstock's office? And how did you choose Dr. Rosenstock? Okay. I had been in a therapy experience first that ended very badly. A local teaching university there in Houston, we called it Ketterman, the Everyman's University. Sure. The book. And that precipitated shortly thereafter, I interviewed with the Central Intelligence Agency. That was my career goal to be a case officer recruiting and running spies in hostile territory. That didn't go well. Naturally, I wasn't in the right frame of mind. Two years later, I'm comatose psycho psychologically. I decide I buy the guns. I have the guns. I put the gun to my head. I say, do I kill myself now or do I pursue legal revenge? What? I chose to pursue a lawsuit. I hired an attorney. He was not the best attorney that I could have hired for my cause. Let's just say that. There's some things that I alleged were not right ultimately quit on me, leaving me pro se against the state of Texas and the university and the individual defendants, led to my white knight attorney. The white knight attorney recommended Dr. Rosenstock. And that's how I ended up in his office with my ninth leader. So interesting. Absolutely. So early on in the book, you state that you learned everything you know about passive aggression from your parents. Can you elaborate on your childhood and the effect that it may have had on this condition? Yes. In addition to a genetic predisposition, the paranoia, perhaps. Sure. My parents would play the, what did your father say? What did your mother say? Well, if you asked permission, the answer was always no. So between the, those games, my mother would use house cleaning and rifle through all the drawers. There were no secrets. I'm your mother. I have that right to know it children are into mm -hmm. perfectly loving from her response but perfectly detrimental to my own development so the passive aggressive came from childhood uh, my parents lost a parent in the two years before i was born so emotionally they were still negotiating their own relationship at the time that i was born and that instability you know a child between what is it, zero and four or zero and five is when the emotional stability gets set. I believe Dr. Rosenstock, you can speak to it, but that was a very unstable time for me. And that resulted in the growth and the mental illness. Absolutely. Would you agree with that? Yes. I, yeah. You know, when I was finished with general psychiatry, I also took a fellowship in child psychiatry and I was on the witness stand one time working a case involving adults sure. and the attorney on the other side. Well, he said, why did you study child psychiatry? Maybe you don't belong in this courtroom. So I said to him, well, you know, I studied child psychiatry because I never met an adult that was born a child. <laughs> and so that we absolutely know that the dynamics of adulthood are directly related to the unlocking, which constitutes the childhood years. Absolutely. And so... Absolutely. We have to see where you come from. What was your environment? What's the, what are the ethical principles? How do you engage the world? Are you willing to go outside certain kinds of rules and so on? And if you don't have that, because we have some parents that it's so, you're so guilty if you don't do something. That's right. I mean, you have to understand where you're coming from. Otherwise, you don't engage the world in a reasonable, which I would say normal fashion. There's right. a wide range of normalities. Yeah. yeah. 
Absolutely. You know, also several times you requested a referral to a psychiatrist and you were advised against it. Do you feel this advice contributed to the worsening of your condition? Absolutely. I needed medicine. I need, more importantly, I needed an expert. You don't fight inventory with inventory. You bring in the tanks. Yeah. You don't fight a rifle with a rifle. You get a machine gun. <laughs> I needed a bigger witness for my lawsuit. And my first attorney would not have any of it. He was concerned that if I got diagnosed, that it would sabotage the case, I think. I don't know why. I'm speculating. I don't know that fact. Sure. But for whatever reason, he wanted to use the incompetent psychologist whose whose sole profession is diagnosing people, but couldn't formulate a diagnosis for me as an expert witness. Absolutely. That, that was frustrating. You know, in mental health, we often talk about secondary gain of patients. This sounds like a little bit of secondary gain on the legal on the, side. On the other on side, the right. Other side. Absolutely. Right. So you were building up and building up and building up. You went into his office. You experienced that evening. How did the relationship continue to evolve and develop over the years between the two of you? Go ahead. Well, starting the first three years, I watched him provisionally. Then he got me in the group. We were in group for what, nine years? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Nine years. A long, yep. a long time, many, many years. And at the same time, I was continuing with him on an individual basis. So he would help me process my feelings group as well as the outside influences. He helped me to maintain my job, to pay for therapy. At several times, I wanted to quit. Right. But he, Dr. Rosenstock insisted, no, the economy's bad, this job. Or when, as I wrote in the book, when my manager tried to fire me, Dr. Rosenstock helped me to appeal to the higher power, to the vice president, Mm -hmm. with a letter. And I was able to remain employed. And so the relationship grew with trust, mutual respect, and all and love. Dr. Rosenstock has become a father figure to me. He's worldly, he's knowledgeable, he's traveled, he's multilingual. It's everything that you want in a father. My father, I respect him, I love him dearly, but he dropped out of high school to earn his GED, earn his speed to go to work, to work, to earn money for his family, earn his GED in the army, and never went beyond that level of education. So Dr. Rosenstock, a mentor, a father figure, and it's love in the relationship as well as mutual respect and trust. Absolutely. You know, clearly he has that feeling of trust that he didn't have in the beginning. And he gained that over a period of time. And clearly you are an incredible psychiatrist and you were able to develop the therapeutic alliance and the therapeutic relationship with him. What brought you into the field of psychiatry? Oh, okay. I really believe that you can be wired to want to help people. Yes. When I was very young, like 13 or so, I was interested in going into the ministry mm-hmm. or to become a rabbi, for example. And, and I was, I already started teaching Hebraic cantillations at age 12. Wow. And I was leading junior services. I was doing all this and a group came from Los Angeles and they wanted to give me a full scholarship before I went to high school and so on. And I told my parents, I think I'd like to do that. And they said, I think you probably ought to go to high school. And they had a a more powerful vote. It's like that Broadway play, 
majority of one. Yes, yeah, exactly. And so with Gertrude Berg. So yeah. anyhow, so I went to high school and so on. So then I decided I want to go to medical school. And But then closest to the ministry, so to speak, mm -hmm. wouldn't be surgery and cardiovascular, cutting people up and right. putting them and sewing together and so on. Maybe psychiatry or something like that would appeal to me. And I had, when I was at the University of Oregon Medical School, for example, in those years, that was the name, we had one of the leading family therapists in the entire country there. And we had a behavioralist, very famous person. And I got interested in how family dynamics and so on work. And I said, well, I'm interested in psychiatry. I'm fascinated with neurology. So I decided I did a summer internship in internal medicine. And I did one in psychology, for example, experimental work. Anyhow, I put it all together and I became more and more determined to go into psychiatry. Right. So once I had my internship and I did a, a private hospital in the emergency room of a county hospital, that was actually in Phoenix, Arizona. Then I applied, I'm going to go to psychiatry. I mean, I'm going to go to residency, except at that time, there was a war called Vietnam. Yes. <laughs> and so the United States government said, we want you, your graduate a doctor. And so that's how I came to Texas. It's an interesting little side bit. When I found out that I'm going to have to be drafted, I have to go in the Navy as a general medical officer. Sure. So I called the White House and they transferred me to the Pentagon. I'm kind of, uh, you know, uh, not that shy. Right. And uh, anyhow, I wind up talking to a commander, Lucci, and he happened to be the one guy that takes each person and puts a place on the map where they're going. So he said, I've got your application right on my desk. I said, well, you know, I do speak Spanish. I figure, you know, that's different than Vietnamese. That's right. And I figured, well, you know, I go to Spain or something. And he said, would Beeville, Texas be okay? And I, of course, I never heard that. Right. So I said, uh, Beeville, Texas, USA? <laughs> <laughs> he said, yes. I said, I believe we worked that out. We'll work that that's out. That's how I came to Texas. And then my re and I worked with Baylor College of Medicine while I was the general medical officer and took care of psychiatric patients. And so instead of going to Sinai in Detroit, which is where I was accepted, sure. I wound up at Baylor. They said, you've already applied. I said, I didn't apply. Yeah, you've already been accepted. <laughs> you know, there I was. So and I've been here ever since. Is that right? Yeah. Well, you may know this little town. I'm from Alice, Texas. I have patients to this day in Alice, Texas. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. My grandfather was a general surgeon in Alice, Texas and got there by, quite by I've been to Alice, Texas. Have you? Yeah. Yes. My grandfather built the very first P&S hospital wow. in Dallas, Texas, wow. yeah. way back in the 40s, I believe. I actually am working some legal cases out of Alice, Texas. I bet you are. <laughs> That's great. Well, I love Dallas, that we have Texas. South Texas. And then they go to Corpus Christi for the big city. That's right. And Naval Air Station. I yeah. was at that Naval Air Station in Corpus. Wow. That is amazing. You know, my family has a ranch in Freer, outside of Freer, Texas, and there's a small naval air station with an airstrip out uh, just northwest of Freer. And when I was a little kid, we'd go out to the ranch on the weekends, and the airplanes, the naval pilots would come over and practice well, power bombs. When I was in Beeville, actually, I was a naval air advanced. Wow. So I'm familiar. Amazing. That's yeah. fantastic. So would you say that Daniel was out of the realm of your other patient population? That he, what was, different about the relationship and the therapeutic alliance the, uh, the main difference is i can usually easily almost automatic pilot yeah can get a relationship with a new person it yeah. just, just works it's sure. comfortable when you're confronted with hello how are you life or death yeah and that's a completely different situation 
But as I understood the dynamics, mm -hmm. having had a few thousand patients before, yeah. as I understood the dynamics, we're going to do okay. I have this belief that wherever you start, you can always do better. That's right. just where I am. And so I knew we would, we'd have to get through rough times first. And it gradually, over time, I knew he had to learn to trust me. Didn't happen in one year, two years, or three years. After three years, he's pretty sure I'm pretty consistent with what I say and what I believe. Even if we disagree on something, sure, he understood it's probably for my own good, although I may not accept that. Right. But at least he got that idea. So now it's really interesting. Daniel even checks on me. He calls up, how you doing? <laughs> I said, no, how's your wife doing? Absolutely. You know? And so it was really kind of interesting. And I check on him and got this new dog. Yep. And this dog was born with a missing part of a paw. And Daniel, I want to take him out. I'm going to love him. I'm going to take care of him. And I mean, this, that, that, that human kindness permeate. Absolutely. Okay. Through yeah. the family, through the family dynamics, even to take care of animals. Yeah. It's a kind of pervasive love that says, really, I care. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Daniel, you probably credit Dr. Rosenstock with a lot of those feelings that you have today, the healthy, functional, thriving side of your life of even loving animals that may be not well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I do. Yeah. He saved my life. Not just my life, but other lives as well. What can, what do you say to someone who saved your life and then stuck with you for what is it now? Twenty five years, twenty twenty five, twenty six years. I think I was fourteen. That, you know, that's, that's it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and you know that day Daniel was both homicidal and suicidal. Absolutely. And July sixteenth, which is tomorrow, I believe, if I'm not wrong, we have a new phone number. Right in the United States, not 911, oh, but 988. Yes, for mental health. That's right, for mental health. And when people are feeling either suicidal or having a mental health crisis, Daniel, all across the nation, beginning tomorrow, you'll be able to pick up the phone. Anyone can pick up the phone and dial 988 and get a trained counselor on the phone to talk to that can give the person, the individual, guidance on where to go, what to seek, where to seek it, how to seek it and send them to people like Dr. You know, I have to tell you one yeah. more thing. So I discovered in knowing Daniel yep. that he has a spiritual dimension. Yeah. And if you look at the book, you'll see at his request, there is a prayer book there is. On, on the front cover. Looks like a Hebrew. It's Hebrew. Yeah. And I often quote things that were meaningful to Dan based on some of the philosophy in this particular prayer book. And before we had this new number that's coming out tomorrow, yes. sometimes when patients will say to me, you know, I don't know what to do when I get upset. I don't know where I'm going to go. And what can you recommend? And if I know they have a spiritual dimension, I'll say, well, what number do you call if you're in trouble in general? And they say, 911. I said, okay, I've got it for you. Psalm 91, verse 11. 9111. Right. And they said, Well, what does that say? I said, I'll give you the Hebrew. I'll even and I've taught some patients the Hebrew. For God has commanded his angels for what reason? To look after you, to watch after you, in all your paths, in all your ways. And I said, Well, look, you've got angels that all you have to do is ask for it. And in Psalm 34, it confirms that. We won't go there right now. But anyhow, they will use that and they'll go back and they'll check their Bibles and so on. 
and they have something to hang on to. And I'll often quote that, or I'll talk about certain songs that I really cherish because they help you get through things. We talked about two of those songs yes, this afternoon. Yes. Can we talk about them again? Sure. One of my favorite songs, Barbara Streisand, and I just love the title. And of course, I love how she sings it. People who need people. That's right. Are the luckiest people in the world. You have to be in relationship with the world, with people. Otherwise, you become the Unabomber out there in some state someplace. That is so important. So we bring people together. Putting the group together in this particular situation was part of it. And the other song that I like so much is one that you can pray for hope and you can do things. And I was mentioning the number one song in America for the 20th century, as judged by the Hollywood people, is Somewhere Over the Rainbow. I had and, no idea. And it was written by Yip Harburg and Harold Arlen in New York. And these young men were uh, born in New York, but their families came from Russia and the Ukraine and that part of the world, and they were subjected to the pogroms. And they said, there's got to be a better place. There's got to be a place where you dream, and if you dream, those dreams can come true. Where is that? Somewhere over the rainbow. Yeah. So if bluebirds can fly over the rainbow, why, oh, I can't. Absolutely. So those songs speak to me, and a lot of people think it's just a Disney song. But if you really study the words, you'll be inspired. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, something else that reminds me of that you and I spoke about, and I share this philosophy, and Daniel, I would think in your life that you share this philosophy, and that is, I say it a little bit differently than Dr. Rosenstock, but I believe that if we can see it, if we can visualize it, we can achieve it. And the way you said it to me is nothing is impossible. That's Everything right. Everything is possible. The Speak impossible takes a little longer. Yes. And any kind of challenge that I've had, it's been a major challenge. If we take our time and carefully think about it and keep an optimistic outlook, yeah. we're going to get there. Yeah. It's been my experience, even with the most dramatic things we can get there. And I give you one example. For example, yeah. I don't know if you want to get into it here. Sure. Now, but yes. Go ahead, give us another example. Well, I'll give you the example that one of our dear friends was a famous Holocaust artist, Alice Lokahana. And we would be together with the whole family Thanksgiving. So, and one Thanksgiving, to be more specific, while I was chewing on a drumstick. I mean, I'm going to get right down. <laughs> you remember that day well. Yeah, I remember I was chewing. I said, Alice, you're such a wonderful, I mean, Tremendous artist. You've taught my children, the grandchildren about your paintings. I, Alice, you've been honored by the BBC, standing ovation committees, United States Congress. You've been honored all over the world, Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, all kinds of places. You've been collected by presidents all over the world. The only place in the world where you haven't been honored yet is the Vatican. So she said, it hasn't happened in 60 some years. It's not going to happen. I said, Alice. Now you've given me a challenge. Absolutely. So my wife helping me, and we made connections with an archbishop, then with a cardinal, eventually to the Secretary of State of the Vatican, eventually to Dr. Francesco Boranelli, who's head of all the art of the Vatican, billions of dollars of art. And then another person was Archbishop Harvey, actually became a, a cardinal, who was the advisor to the Pope at that time, Pope Benedict XVI. I offered the Pope an idea. I will deliver to the Vatican any painting that your artist decides he wants for the Vatican, 
at no charge to you. All I want in return is a promise that you'll keep the message of Il Alocasto in Italian under the flag of Il Vaticano for every generation past our lives. And I wanted this particular pope because when Alice was a beautiful 16-year-old girl, she was sent from Sharwar, Hungary, the last stages of the war, to Auschwitz. At the same time, the Pope was in the Nazi unit. And I thought, if I could bring them together in the eighth decade of life, what a fantastic, never done history. And I could do this maybe in the spirit of what we call Second Vatican Council, where the community is supposed to reach out to the Jewish community, the Catholic community, and so on. And so that was my proposal. That's a short version of the story. And I received word from the Holy Father Please come. I accept this. Come on a Wednesday. I said, absolutely. We were there. My wife was there with me, Alice and her family. And we were up there with the Holy Father. The Swiss guard came down from the Apostolic Palace with this gigantic painting. We were there with the artist. We had 30,000 people down below in St. Peter's Square. And it was a beautiful moment as we discussed the painting with Pope Benedict XVI. Absolutely. And this turned out to be the highlight or one of the great highlights of Alice's life. Here is this poor girl, could have been killed many times in Auschwitz. That's lots of stories there. Winds up with the Holy Father, with her painting, talking about the Holocaust. First with the Sistine Chapel, where it hung for a while, and then to the Museum of the Vatican. So it's now permanent history, never been done before. It's absolutely a wonderful thing that everybody told me is not possible when we started. Absolutely. And I said, yeah. it's not impossible. It's going to take a little longer. That's right. But it's possible. But it's possible. And you did it. Congratulations on, on that. I feel so proud for Alex. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure she feels proud that you did that. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Daniel, what is the most, where do you see yourself in five years from now? You know, speaking of the impossible becoming possible, at one time in your life, you thought tomorrow was impossible. Where are you today and how are you feeling? And what do you see for yourself in the future? Well, today I'm focused on helping my parents. Yeah. They're not going to live forever. Odds are my father passed before my mother, but they're both going to pass. Sure. So I don't know if it'll be five years or seven or nine, but they're going to pass. And at that point, I will probably relocate to Texas or maybe Tennessee or Florida, a state with no state income tax, and <laughs> look for a relationship. Yeah. That's the one thing that's missing from my life right now is my own relationship. Right. Part of the reason that Dr. Rose convinced me to write my book, or I convinced myself, I should say, was so that I could give the book to whoever was interested in me and say, hey, you're single, you're nearly 60, you've never been married, you don't have any kids, what's wrong with you? What well, here's my baggage. You can accept me, read the book. That's my baggage. Let's talk. Absolutely. And I think probably in your future, there is a beautiful relationship ahead. People who need people are the luckiest people in the world. You know, Daniel, thank you so much for writing this book. Thank you for being a part of our lives. Thank you for being a part of Dr. Rosenstock's life. I'm sure he is very grateful for that. I really am. Absolutely. And I know Daniel must be. Great for him and great for you, Dr. Flowers. You bet. Absolutely. 
You know, we'll finish with something that we do here a lot at J Flowers Health Institute, and that's comprehensive diagnostic evaluations. And, you know, I believe that when someone is in a difficult time in their life and their family or themselves, they're not sure what is going on in their life. Their psychiatrist, their psychologist or therapist or family wants to know a little bit more about it. You know, we offer this, I believe in this 360 degree approach to health and wellness of really looking at each integrative part of our life. What's your philosophy on doing a comprehensive diagnostic evaluation? Oh, I think that's first class. That's the the best you can do because everybody is made up of components. There is your social life, your community life, your social skills. You want to know where you're a little deficient, how we can do this. You can do this with, for example, we do neurotherapy, for example, in my office and so on. We want to put every parameter that we can to make this person whole again to the extent possible given what we have, what we know in their particular skills. But that psychosocial model, the entire holistic individual is really first class, top quality. Yeah, And I love your philosophy. It's it's the best philosophy. Well, coming from you, that means the world to me. Thank you so much for your time and being here today. Daniel, thanks for coming into it with us on this video. And I want to meet you in person when you get down to Houston. And I just want to remind everybody that a clear diagnosis, I believe, is the key to fully, truly thriving, looking at good health. So thank you all for being here. Yep. Dr. Potter, before you go, if I could just add a comment. Of course. The, Dr. Rosenstock will tell you that the right treatment with the right diagnosis, anything is possible. But if you do internet search for the search term patients harmed by psychotherapy, You'll find reports and statistics that say that 30 to 40% of patients in counseling today are not fully benefiting. They're not getting better. They show up week after week. They pay their money. The doctor, no matter how well-intentioned, well-meaning, or well-educated, they just don't seem to be getting better. And another 5 to 10% are actually harmed by the therapy that they're receiving. So the right diagnosis and the right treatment are absolutely critical to success. It's both just diagnosis and the treatment plan. Yep. I could not agree with you more. And that is exactly why I founded the J Flowers Health Institute, Daniel, is because of that. I really, truly believe that we can go to therapy for years and have the wrong diagnosis. Dr. Rosenstock was wise or continues to be wise, but he was certainly wise and experienced when he met you and was able to work with you for many, many years successfully. But a lot of people don't get what the gift that you had in life. And so a proper diagnosis is so important and for that roadmap to health. So thank you for saying that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Daniel, have a great weekend. Thank you for being here. We'll see you soon. Dr. Rosenstock, sure. thank you. Thank you for inviting We'd us. love thank to have you, you back. Flowers. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. you, Dr. Rosenstock. Thank you. My pleasure. Really, yeah. it's, it's an honor. Thank you so much. Good to see you. Yeah. My pleasure. All right. And I'd like to remind everyone watching or listening to us that there are numerous platforms to find our podcast, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Please share this episode on social media or with someone that you think it could help. Absolutely. And we remind you also that a clear diagnosis is key to the most effective treatment possible. Yes, it is. See you next week. Thanks again, Robin. Thank you.